2: Hello, it's Mike. It's Saturday. It's the Saturday Show. Isn't this amazing? I'm not even in the United States of America right now. I'm in a different state than the United States. I can't divulge where. It is not Qatar. But through the miracle of time and travel and podcasts, Here I am in your ears to bring you the best of the week and the best of all time. Now, the best of the week and the best of all time are related, and they are not reflective of the best of society. Two segments about gun crime, specifically mass shootings. First, I bring you our segment from Not Even Mad. It was the lead-off segment where Jamie Kerchick framed what he wanted to talk about, Uh, as the problem of rushing to judgment to figure out what the motivations of a mass shooter were. And then from there casting blame on broad swaths of society, let us say. I had a little subtle tweak on that, a version of which I talked about on the gist a couple days ago. But you should be oriented to know that Virginia Heffernan was not having what Jamie was putting forward. I think she disagreed with me also. And sometimes things get contentious. I know sometimes listeners don't love that. Aren't you guys supposed to get along? Not really. No, we're supposed to disagree predict. Subjectively, I think at times it was heated, but the end result is something for everyone to think about and think everyone put their best arguments forward. So that's why I'm playing you the segment. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was worthwhile. I'm always interested to hear your thoughts on our Not Even Mad segments, but you do have to subscribe in that feed directly. I'm not going to keep playing them. Well, maybe I will, but you only get a portion of the show, a taste of the show when you listen to it here. And if you want to send uh, any feedback on that, it's not even mad at peachfishprojects.com. The second segment comes from years ago, specifically April of 2018, and I interviewed National Review editor Charles C.W. Cook, who actually has his own podcast now, and he explained why he thinks repealing the Second Amendment would be a losing proposition for gun control advocates. This was an idea promulgated by uh, such public intellectuals as Brett Stevens at the time. The only way we're going to do anything about this is just a repeal of the Second Amendment. Charlie Cook says no, and you will understand why. So first, one from Not Even Mad, and then one from 2018. Hello and welcome to Not Even Mad, a show where we are at times intemperate, obviously obstreperous, and invariably incredulous, but we're not even mad. We are three people who don't always agree. In fact, that makes for interesting listening when we don't. Today, we speak of narratives around mass shootings, the likelihood of Joe Biden's 2024 bid, and the man with a space telescope named after him goes to cancel court. We do vow to relish the discourse because we are not even mad. So I say we, or we specifically, we've got Jamie Kerchik columnist for Tablet Magazine and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Now, Jamie, I know you don't like soccer, but you do like beating Iran. Was it worth having to play soccer to do so? Uh,
0: I'd rather beat them on the battlefield than in the football <laughs> pitch. So take that as you will. <laughs>
2: Yes, you stick to your guns in all all forms. Literally. Virginia Heffernan writes for Wired, has her own substack called Magic and Loss, and she had a rooting interest in the trial and conviction of Stuart Rhodes. What's your personal interaction with the uh, monocular Mr. Rhodes?
3: Boy, we have a past. Uh, Stuart Rhodes in 2007 was running the digital campaign and I guess the rest of the campaign for Ron Paul, Rand Paul's libertarian uh, and nutjob father. And I wrote something for The New York Times in, a, in a, one of its early blogs about Ron Paul having taken some money from the head of a neo-Nazi organization. I got a couple of the facts wrong, but that it, none of that had anything to do with the fact that I got piled on by uh, by Stuart Rhodes's minions on the Ron Paul campaign Uh, Death threats, rape threats, they wouldn't end. They broke the New York Times site because they came in, remember these, in the comments section, Mm -hmm. not on Twitter in those days. Um, And the New York Times ended up capitulating and taking the piece off the site. It can only be found in Internet Archive now. um, And uh, I've found it since. It's a relatively um, inoffensive piece of reporting. I did get wrong This fact, I want to correct it for all time, Ron Paul did not take money from Stormfront. The check was made out from Don Black, then the president of Stormfront. I regret the error. But Stuart Rhodes showed his colors. We knew in plain sight that the guy was uh, white supremacy curious and capable of online violence that has now tilted into uh, real violence in the form of January 6th. So I'm happy to see him convicted of seditious conspiracy.
2: This has been not even mad sedition edition. Uh, I (laughs) I back you up on that one. And as far as Iran goes, I got three words, fatwa on flopping. Okay, let's go (laughs) to the uniquely joyful American triumph on the soccer pitch to a regular American tragedy.
0: Jamie, I task you with taking us to topic number one. The Saturday before Thanksgiving, a 22-year-old individual named Anderson Lee Aldrich walked into the Q Club, a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs, Colorado, where he unleashed a long rifle and opened fire. He managed to kill five people and wound some 25 more before being subdued by a group of patrons. Here is Ben Collins, an MSNBC reporter who covers online disinformation, responding to the attack. I am trying to thread this needle here. I'm trying to say that this is happening this targeted stuff has real life impacts. They say on the internet has real life impacts. And I'm gonna fail, by the way. I'm gonna you know, freak out because it's happening, because I wake, I wake up and I see that there are five dead bodies. But I think we have to have a come to Jesus moment here uh, as reporters. Are we more afraid of being on Breitbart for saying that trans people deserve to be alive? Or are we more afraid of the dead people? Because I'm more afraid of the dead people I don't, want fi- I don't want to wake up on a Sunday and see that all these headlines came to fruition. Collins was hardly alone in pinning the blame for this tragedy on conservatives. Within minutes of news breaking about a shooting at a gay club, a chorus of online progressives were busily pronouncing that anyone who questions the propriety of teaching gender theory to elementary school kids had blood on their hands. Since Collins issued that display of self-righteous indignation, a complication has emerged for his narrative, however. Aldrich's lawyers announced that their client identifies as non-binary and insists on being referred to with they-them pronouns. This would seem to put something of a dent in the narrative that Aldrich was inspired by hatred of the LGBTQIA community, and that Aldrich, at least according to their self-identification, is a part of said community. Aldrich has not released a statement, though emerging details about his past provide some clues as to what might have led him to do what he did about 10 days ago. As is the case with so many mass shooters, he had a troubled childhood. His mother had serious mental health issues, and he was placed in the care of his grandmother. And his father, a former pornographic film actor, was arrested for illegally importing marijuana. Last year, Aldrich's mom called the police, uh, terrified that her Son was threatening to harm her with a homemade bomb. Now, we had raised the possibility of discussing this tragedy uh, for last week's episode of Not Even Mad, but I demurred because I was hesitant to discuss a mass shooter's motives while the bodies were still warm. Recent developments leave me feeling vindicated in that assessment. Mike is my skepticism of the rush to pronounce upon Aldrich's Motivations Justified.
2: Well, you're never wrong as a journalist to not get ahead of the facts. And you're certainly you're never wrong as a real journalist. A true I'm just journalist, never wrong, not.
0: Mike. I mean, let me just leave
3: it back. <laughs> yeah, let's cut through <laughs> all the qualifiers. Not even wrong. But
2: you're never wrong to uh, not grandstand, which is what Ben Collins was doing. I was trying to unpack his point from the garments that he was so noisily rending. <laughs> but here is my problem with all of this. Are we now in a dynamic... That if it turns out that this shooter was actually motivated by anti queer or anti drag queen animus, that one side is right and had the better side of the argument, is it the case that if this individual's supposed binarism is Actual And not just a legal ploy, which I suspect it might be that that side will have egg on its face. No, I think we absolutely have to get out of this dynamic of looking at mass shootings. And I hope we could get to this only certain select mass shootings as giving us vindication of what I've been saying all along. Life is not a Ryan Murphy TV drama. And for there to be horrible impulses in the world and just bad ideas, the proof of this isn't that, quote, people will get killed. And people have been killed. Obviously, they've been killed because of homophobia and they've been killed because of of racism. And some of the mass shootings that have occurred, uh, you go right to the online published manifestos and you could tell that the motives of the shooter were exactly what Ben Collins feared they would be. But we are way too invested in a see, I told you I was right about things that you might have been right about. Things like our hatred of drag queen bingo is so dysfunctional as a society and can only have ill effects. And there have been people who've issued threats and uh, tried to plant bombs because drag queen shows were occurring. But it is just wrong. It is not useful to use these. Acts of madmen as a vindication for our priors, for saying, see, I always told you this proves it. Because if in the one case it's not true, does that mean that your assertion that we should maybe be a little kinder and more open to drag queens, does that call into question that assertion? It shouldn't, so you shouldn't pin it on the act of a madman.
3: Yeah, I mean, that, that, uh, you know, I was going to come in a little hotter, but now um, Mike has encouraged me to temper my response to Jamie's opening um, because, yes, of course, these things are multifactorial and they only uh, show themselves over time unless there is, as you say, a manifesto. But I will take issue with the idea that Uh, Collins is blaming, quote, conservatives for this mass murder. That's not what he says. I mean, in the part of the clip you didn't play, Jamie, Collins does nothing but his job putting the murders at Club Q in the context of these rapid fire recent events of uh, uh, anti-LGBTQ extremists carrying out and egging on a rampage of violence and violent threats towards schools, hospitals, libraries that they deem overly hospitable to gay and trans people. Um, I don't know if you followed this, but Boston Children's Hospital, where my grandfather worked, um, was um, hit with a hate campaign um, on an account with millions of followers. That account floridly lied that that hospital was removing the ovaries of girls. I hardly need to tell you, this is bullshit, debunked over and over, but it led to threats to execute doctors and detonate bombs at the hospital that they ended up having to take seriously. Fortunately, no one's been hurt, but they've been hurt in other cases. And this is just one of the headlines that in that section, Colin cites, he's done this reporting. He's not talking about ordinary conservatives. He's talking about violent extremists who are actually being violent and threatening violence. And then there's Tucker Carlson. I don't know if he counts as an ordinary conservative, but you may have seen when he reported on the mass murder at Club Q, he gave pro forma condolences to the families and then lurched into his usual demented smears of LGBTQ people as groomers who are a threat to children. He had a nutcase guest named Jamie Mitchell. I don't know if you know this woman, but she is the head of something like called Gaze Against Groomers. Um, and she said the tragedy that happened in Colorado Springs. So she was making the connection the other night. It was expected and predictable. We saw it coming from a mile away because LGBTQ people and their defenders are groomers. She also says, I don't think the violence is going to stop until we end this evil agenda that's attacking children. So it wasn't, it was hardly just Collins making this connection. But the point is the Club Q massacre, came into an atmosphere thick with extremism and anti-gay abuse, and it's well within Collins's wheelhouse to point this out without speculating on the motivation, just the context that this shooting happened in. Uh, you know, to say that anyone, I'll go further, Jamie, to say that anyone who questions the, quote, propriety of teaching gender theory to elementary school students has blood on their hands is to deliberately misunderstand Collins, who says nothing about teaching gender theory to elementary school students or that being some kind of part of a bloodbath, and instead refers to actually violent extremists as the context for this mass murder.
0: No, I mean, a lot of the criticism that's been directed has been not just at the nutters and the violent extremists. It's been at people who are raising, in my opinion, good faith objections to certain aspects of transgender ideology. Uh, it's not just conservatives, by the way. There's a lot of gender critical feminists. There's a lot of lesbians. There are a lot of people who don't like the idea that uh, children should be told that because they do not conform to certain gender stereotypes, that that means that they are the opposite sex.
3: Well, Jamie Mitchell, a gay again, against groomers, would share that view. She would, but and she's also. also I well, know that they're.
0: Yeah, I don't. I, independently. Yeah, can I finish? I don't. Yeah. The, the term groomer is really. Disgusting. I think we would agree on that and should not be used in, in uh, terms of this debate. So I totally disassociate myself with that organization, with this woman, uh, with anyone who would use that term uh, to describe gay people. It's, it's abhorrent. But there's this conflation going on, which is that anyone who questions aspects of this radical ideology, and it is radical. And there, are, and there are elements of it that are quite homophobic because to tell people who are gender nonconforming, many of whom are gay because all gay people are gender nonconforming in the sense that they are attracted to people of the opposite sex. To tell kids, prepubescent kids who haven't even gone through puberty yet, okay, to tell them that if they experience any kind of you know, uh, confusion about their gender, that this means that they are transgender, uh, which is preparing them to go on a path of medicalization um and potential surgeries and hormones and all sorts of things to be to be teaching that to children i think is something that we should be able to have a good faith debate about okay and the I problem do too. the problem and maybe is we
3: should another time but what does this have to do with the killer who shot up a gay club because
0: we because people like myself people like myself and other people who have these good faith objections are being conflated and are being grouped in with murderers and terrorists and people who threaten to bomb places. There's a term that's been introduced that I've never heard before until a couple weeks ago, stochastic terrorism. This is a new term that I've never heard, which is basically saying that anyone who, you know, if, if you say critical things about a group, that you are therefore responsible um, for violence that might erupt against them. It's basically a new way to legitimize censorship. And it's something that Ben Collins and a lot of his a lot of his colleagues in this disinformation but business- But
3: also being critical of- pre of of puberty blockers or of certain uh, educational trends is not (laughs) has nothing to do with this murder. And no one is. I mean, Collins is the one you cited. I don't know who the other progressives you are who are saying, oh, any dispute about puberty blockers is somehow uh, t- those people who dispute the worth of puberty blockers are to blame for this violence. Anyone making that connection is absurd. But that is the connection that you wanted to make because you want this somehow to be an attack on conservatives.
0: It's, I get. Well, that's not. I shouldn't have have even. I shouldn't have used conservatives gate. in my intro because it's there's a lot of liberals. They're not speaking up about it, but believe me, I know because I have conversations with them. Liberals who are at serious unease about a lot of this transgender ideology that's being taught in schools. They're not saying it publicly. I
3: just don't know what we're talking about this. I I thought we were talking about a mass murder. How I heard
2: Ben Collins' statement, you're either on one side or the other. You either think that trans people...
0: Deserve to live. Deserve to live. It's an absurd straw man argument for him to present.
2: Or you are on the side of dead bodies. And I heard that as saying, if you raise objections about whether puberty blockers should be prescribed or gender confirming surgeries should be performed on minors. You are on the wrong side of that question, of that choice. I mean, I did hear him clearly saying that. What he
3: says is that he, are we too afraid to end up on Breitbart for pro-trans arguments, so that we don't condemn anti-gay violence. Now, I don't. I'm not in that. Don't find myself in that position. In spite of the fact that my politics are pro-trans, so I don't know about that risk. But I've been criticized, and I do say plenty of things that Breitbart attacks me for. Um, but, um, but I think that you know someone in his position who right now, because of what he said, is being <laughs> blamed for uh, you know his seeming pro-trans argument that he thinks. He should have he should have risked that blame and I think he was right to risk the this you know censoriousness from from uh, Jamie in order to make his point that this particular incredibly troubling massacre, happens in the context of anti-gay sentiment. Well,
2: Ben Collins takes no risk in making that point. Nor he does any, nor does just, any,
0: this is, a, yeah, kind of. Just, no, no journalist is afraid of ending right. up on what the right I part. Think,
2: I think the dishonest <laughs> thing that Ben Collins is doing is that, is saying that people who are holding their tongue, people really want to be 100% pro-trans and come out with some sort of statement that WPATH, WPATH is wrong when it comes to gender-confirming surgery, but they fear uh, approbation from the Breitbart crowd, that it's, is a dishonest. It's the, it's the opposite. It's the entire it's opposite. The opposite. In fact, when Michelle Goldberg, who wrote about this, wrote, and I, I just quote, "You didn't know I did this. I snuck in her quote, which was the article. Her op-ed was all about our craziness when it comes to objecting to drag queens. The, the." Illness that has beset so many in our society when we look at this, you know, I would say mostly joyous, but absolutely uh, unharmful expression right and come to see it as a thing of hate there was one sentence that she said where i believe there's legitimate debate over questions like puberty blockers or gender confirming surgeries and she did get that got pulled out and she did get assailed for saying that and she did get lumped in with you know the people who would kill gay people and that's what's going on it's not about uh, someone being afraid of breitbart The one thing I was desperate to say is that there are certain mass shootings that we point to because, uh, depending on the context or even the motives of the killer, they tell us something terrible about society. But the mass shootings or regular shootings that we never talk about, and I could direct you to the Mm -hmm. list, the mass shootings database, where Mm -hmm. there were five killed in Colorado Springs. And if you go through it, there were four killed in Aurora, Colorado in a quadruple murder-suicide, and there were five killed in Maryland, and there were four killed in Philadelphia, and this happens weekly, and they're almost always in minority communities, they're always, I think I think almost 100% of the time, done because of the problem with guns, and it's just that the problem that those murders, the context that those murders point to is not as, I don't know, interesting or different, or I would say doesn't have the easy enemy as uh, shooting like the Q club. And I think that that is really showing us something horrible about our society.
3: I don't, I mean, using this to score political points seems wrong. Using it, if this is Elliot Roger, the incel hating women, or this is Robert D. Bowers who killed 11 at the Tree, Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. If if this is one of those cases where it is a hate crime, it is hate violence. I hope that we have the open mindedness to see that as part of a context of broader anti gay, anti semitic, anti you know misogynistic uh, sentiment. That's that's all I would want from reporters.
0: Well, I'll just note before we wrap this up that since Mix Aldrich. Uh, came out, so to speak, as non-binary. There's been radio silence from the media and progressives, so there's that.
2: So in this program, I often talk about guns and gun control and gun rights, and a frequent tactic of mine is to take an outrageous or ridiculous or false claim by the likes of a Dana Lash or a Rush Limbaugh or even a Ben Shapiro, it pains me to a certain extent to say, and uh, unpack them as the graduate students say, and perhaps demonstrate why those aren't good arguments at all. I have a harder time doing that, but I am going to try with the arguments of Charles C.W. Cook. He is the editor of National Review Online. He is not only a gun expert, but I think someone who always sticks to the facts and fights fair. So I wanted to have him on. Hello, Charles. How are you?
4: I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on.
2: So before we even start, would you say, I mean, there you are at the National Review and you are uh, conservative with a libertarian bent. Is it the gun issue that shaped your politics to this day?
4: It did have a a big role, uh, although it wasn't so much because I wanted people to have guns. In fact, I was quite anti-gun growing up. It was when I was Studying 18th century history, I got into the question of what the Second Amendment means, and the case for what's called the standard model, the individual rights model, was so overwhelming, and so broadly rejected on the left. This is pre-Heller, that I began to be a little disillusioned with the the centre-left, and I think that more than anything got me interested in not just American history, but also more, more conservative or classically liberal ideas. So yeah, that did have a big effect on me, but, but not in the normal, I want to keep my gun sort of way.
2: Right. So the, the individual model is the one that looks at the Second Amendment and said, well, this was designed for militias and individuals don't have a right to guns. And before the Heller decision, that was not even not just the left, but the courts at large had never found an individual right to own a gun. And your research showed that's clearly what the founding fathers intended.
4: Well, it is an individual right. Yes, that, that is what my research showed. I, I think it's slightly misleading. I'm not accusing you of, of being misleading. But I think it is slightly misleading when people say that the court had never found an individual right to bear arms, in that that is true. But they'd never found the opposite either. This had not been litigated. Um, now, I would say that's because it was so obvious. If you go back to the jurists in the early 19th century, and the late 18th century, they were clear on this. It, it wasn't Really debated. If you read the execrable Dred Scott decision, Justice Tawney says quite openly, if we allow African-Americans to become citizens, they'll start carrying guns. Well, of course, they weren't allowed in militias. It's in the, the debates over the passage of the 14th Amendment, the 1865 Civil Rights Act is explicitly mentioned as one of the individual rights uh, through the, the the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which will be granted to, to freed slaves. It's there in the late 19th century, and so on and so forth. So... I mean, yes, it's true. It never came up in the Supreme Court directly. But that's, you know, in the same way that the First Amendment wasn't actually litigated until the free speech clause wasn't litigated until the 20th century either. That doesn't mean the Alien and Sedition Acts were okay.
2: Yeah. So let's start with a place of agreement. You recently wrote a rant. In fact, you didn't recently write it. You wrote it in 2015 saying, go ahead, guys. If you want to try to repeal the Second Amendment, be my guest. The theory being this will bring a lot to the fore that people who say they want to repeal the Second Amendment wouldn't want to grapple with. Okay. You wrote that in 2015. National Review just republished it because the idea of repealing the Second Amendment when you first wrote the article, the thinker, the public intellectual who you were rebutting, who put forward this case, was the comedian Rob Delaney. But now, in 2018, not only does Brett Stevens, columnist, conservative columnist of the New York Times, write it, so does former Supreme Court Justice John Paul Stevens repeal the Second Amendment. What's your case against repealing the Second Amendment? Why are you saying? Be my guest. Well,
4: I mean, I, I think we have to acknowledge that irrespective of one's view on guns, or in fact, on anything, the US Constitution is extremely difficult to amend. I mean, people say flippantly, let's just repeal the Second Amendment, the process would be grueling for its advocates. The first thing you would have to do is to convince two thirds of Congress and three quarters of the states, which is almost impossible. You'd have to essentially found another party. If you tried to do it within the Democratic Party, you would hand an awful lot of elections to Republicans. You would have to be explicitly on the record, asking Americans to acquiesce to the removal of one of the Bill of Rights. And you'd have to do that at all sorts of levels. PTAs, you'd have to go to bowling leagues, you'd have to go to a lot of blue collar workers who might agree with... The leaders of this movement on other questions, unions maybe, but probably don't on repealing the Second Amendment outright. But then even if you manage somehow to do that, which I think would be almost impossible, but even if you manage somehow to do that, you'd have all of the work still ahead of you. Because to repeal the Second Amendment is not to confiscate all the guns automatically. And it's not even to change all of the laws automatically. After the Prohibition Amendment was passed, you still had to have the Volstead Act. And then you still had to enforce the Volstead Act. So you would see a similar thing here, you'd run into the 45, I think, state constitutions that also have individual rights to bear arms. And I think progressives would do well to think through the implications of that enforcement, even if they vehemently disagree with me on the on the, the underlying question. It's often said, and I think this is true, that we can't get rid of 11 million illegal immigrants. We just can't do it. We don't know where they are. To round them up would necessitate a massive sort of federal police force of the sort that everyone should oppose. There are almost 400 million guns in America, and uh, a lot of them are owned by people who really don't like the government very much and would not give them up. Yeah. Um, uh, and a lot of more,
2: them are owned by people if they gave up their first hundred guns, they'd still have a couple hundred left.
4: Well, that's right. And so just to start with, it would be difficult to achieve. But, but the reality is that I would probably not be the first target. Minorities disproportionately would be. Minorities who are disproportionately poor, who live in cities. And I'm not sure that civil libertarians want to go down that road. If we look, for example, at the drug war, we might have an outline of what we would expect. We would see a great deal of incarceration. We would see a great deal of unequal prosecution and of caprice. When most people say repeal the second amendment, they're not saying so that there's no constitutional check. They're saying, cause we want to take right. the, the guns away or a lot of them away. And that's one thing to do in Japan which doesn't have many, or in Britain, my my country of birth, but it is another thing to do here.
2: Right. And I, when Brett Stevens was writing about it, I was truly wondering, I don't think he's a dishonest person, but I was wondering, are you trying to make some sort of bank shot point uh, that you're actually pro-guns and you're trying to write uh, an essay where you don't give away Your real position, but just uh, the implications of the essay show how hard it is to take away guns. But then when John Paul Stevens wrote it, I was really flummoxed because I do not think you have to monkey with the Second Amendment at all to pass gun control measures.
4: Well, that's the strongest argument, I think. From your position, now I do disagree with it, and I'm happy to explain why. Um, but the argument—no, I'd rather you not.
2: I'd rather you just call it the strong argument.
4: <laughs> Go ahead. Well, the the yeah. argument Lawrence Tribe put against Justice Stevens, um, and indeed the argument that Barack Obama used to make, is the best one, and that that goes like this. Clearly, the Second Amendment protects an individual right. And that was Obama's view. He said so at the time of Heller. It's also Lawrence Tribe's view. But there is no reason that that individual right cannot be regulated in most of the ways that gun control groups want. Now, obviously, you can't get rid of all guns. With the second amendment in place but this argument holds that you can limit magazine size you can ban so-called assault weapons uh, you can restrict or at least require permits for carry and so on and so forth
2: do you disagree with any of those three parts any of the magazine size the types of weapons and licensing i'm not talking about the effectiveness i'm talking about the constitutionality of trying those things
4: i do yes i do and i'll tell you why because Mm -hmm. the Heller decision sets up an in common use standard it also sets up a dangerous and unusual standard which is often misrepresented as unusually dangerous it's dangerous and unusual and as diane feinstein pointed out this morning there are 15 million so-called assault weapons in the united states the ar-15 is the most commonly purchased rifle in america it's the ford f-150 within the genre Goodness knows how many high-capacity magazines there are. Under the plain text of the Heller standard, AR-15s are in common use for lawful purposes. I mean, by definition, we would know if 15 million ARs were being misused. They are, therefore, protected. And if you go back to the the, the founding and you look up contemporary definitions of arms as opposed to ordnance. Um, this is one of the reasons that line you hear from less intelligent people, oh, why can't I have a nuclear weapon, is so silly. Ordnance wasn't protected by the Second Amendment. Arms are, and the right. contemporary definition... And this has to do with
2: things like carbines and if the bullet is, if the round is within the chamber as opposed to without.
4: Yeah, ordnance, you know, bombs, rockets, um, and so forth. Now, there is obviously a line there which you'd need some sort of... Uh, decision on as justice scalia pointed out is a rocket launcher count that's a difficult question i accept that but uh, an ar-15 is a, is a carbine it's it's a standard rifle it is included in every single contemporary uh, by which i mean 18th century definition of arms it's not unusual so I don't think, no, that New York's laws are constitutional under the Second Amendment. I am less confident about that, by which I mean I'm far more open to arguments to the contrary than I am on, say, whether the Second Amendment protects an individual right, though.
2: Okay, let's put the constitutionality aside. Let's talk about effectiveness. The vast majority of murders, of gun homicides in this country have nothing to do with any type of rifle or or long guns, and the AR-15 and those type of weapons would fall under that. It's really you know, in the hundreds, and we're talking about 15,000 or so so murders. But here is my point. Even if such a measure is something like 99% ineffective, because we have 13,000 or so murders, if it's 99% ineffective, that means it could save 130 lives. And I think, especially since how AR-15s are used are in these big, high-profile school shootings, I think that might be worth pursuing.
4: Well, I don't. And I'll I'll explain why. It's certainly not because I don't want to save 130 lives. I I do. We we have a a different problem now, it seems, than we had 30 years ago. Crime has come down an awful lot. So has gun crime. It's not entirely clear why. Indeed, people argue over that. But it has. And this has happened at the point at which guns have doubled in number and the laws have been loosened. Crime is not going up. Gun crime is not going up. What is going up, unfortunately, is the lethality of mass shootings. There's some debate over whether they are more frequent. They seem to be, but whether or not they are, they are more lethal, especially in America. And sort of, I think, five of the worst 10 in America have been in the last four or five years. One common pattern within those mass shootings, and this seems to be increasingly the case, is the AR 15. But I don't think it is the cause of them or the cause of their lethality. I think people who are inclined to do this tend to obsess over school shootings. They tend to plan and plan. They disgustingly see previous numbers as numbers to beat and they gravitate i think toward the gun that looks like a machine gun it's not one but it looks like a machine gun it's customizable it looks like a video game gun that cosmetic element does also seem to attract a certain sort of person much in the way that certain cars attract a certain sort of driver And that is a problem, but I don't think it's a problem that you can solve, because I don't think people look at an AR and say, well, now i become a school shooter. I think people say, I'm going to become a school shooter, and they think, well, I will use an AR. So I don't think there would be a big difference if it were banned. And and in fact, we saw that it is entirely possible, unfortunately, to murder a lot of people with even quite low-powered handguns at Virginia Tech.
2: So... I understand what you're saying, that this sort of person who is going to shoot up a school that there might be a causal element, that will be the instrument he uses. I say that if you take the AR-15 out of that shooter's hands and put a handgun in, you have less lethality. And I base this on videos I've seen and interviews I've heard with ER doctors and documentation of what the bullet from the what the round from the AR-15 does to the human body versus a handgun. And even if we look at the three most recent school shootings, the one in Maryland and the one in Kentucky had few victims and there was a handgun used and the one in Florida had an AR-15 and 17 people are dead.
4: Again, I'm I'm just simply not convinced by that. what happens in these scenarios is somebody goes into a school or or wherever with a gun and people run into the corner and they hide in closets and they hide under their desks. And whether you have a handgun or an AR-15 or, to be honest with you, a shotgun, which is probably the most lethal of all in those sort of quarters, you're going to cause an awful lot of damage if there's no one firing back. I will never pretend to know the answer to this. I really don't know what to do, but I'm not at all convinced that uh, limiting the AR-15's availability is going to help. And I think perhaps one of the differences here between someone with my views and someone with, say, your views is that we have different conceptions of the downside to taking this action. Because I think that there is a a point to the AR-15 because I believe people should be able to own them. I therefore look at this as, as a trade-off. But if you don't believe that there's really any point in an AR-15, if you don't want one, if you can't see why it would greatly matter if it were banned, then it is entirely rational to come to the view that you have because, well, why not try it?
2: Well, um, actually, I, no, I think of it more like lawn darts. I see the point. They can be fun to play with lawn darts. But once I find that, you know, two kids get impaled by lawn darts, I'd give up my lawn dart. I have no Second Amendment right to a lawn dart. But I will say I know how to deal with lawn darts safely. And yet, if my giving up the lawn dart means five kids in some state that I'll never heard of won't die, that's a trade-off I'd make.
4: Well, let's explore that a little bit then. I mean, a swimming pool, for example, swimming pools are an awful lot more deadly than firearms um, to children on average would you think people should give those up? And, no, and I was not, thinking,
2: I thought of swimming pools when I made my lawn dart analogy, and I was thinking, well, another example would be the the fencing around swimming pools. So something that takes something dangerous or, uh, and something that we both agree has a use, a swimming pool, what could we do to minimize the uh, danger of it? To me, that's something like limiting the size of a magazine, or in fact, limiting the type of weapon itself to me there is a benefit to owning a gun uh, from sports shooting to self-defense these type of guns correlate for whatever reason to the mass shootings then I want to get into the problem of we're a democracy and it very much upsets us and that alone should be taken seriously so would it be right to say let's put some fencing whether literal or theoretical around this potential danger I say yes
4: well I would say yes too because I think the fencing works.
2: But the fencing, too, but in my analogy with the guns, the fencing is magazine size and the type of gun itself.
4: But you think that those make a difference and I don't. Right. The reason I bring up swimming pools is that I suspect that you're more likely to balk at the idea of banning swimming pools to save kids, even though we know kids will still die because you think that there is a real use to swimming pools, which of course there is. Um, that was the point I was making, that I, I think that it is a good thing that people can own ARs and higher capacity magazines. And so I am not going to try a ban that I think will do nothing. But
2: yeah, but if there was a don't. type of swimming pool that was especially correlative to death, then I would seriously considering banning that type of swimming pool.
4: I'm, I'm nervous. of I'm nervous about correlations in these sorts of debates. I, we did see some studies after the assault weapons ban, and it seems to have done very little, if anything. And the most recent one that's being touted just shows a correlation. And I'm just I'm I'm not a scientist, but I'm not convinced by that.
2: Charles C.W. Cook is the editor of National Review Online, and he is a frequent panelist on one of my favorite podcasts, the National Review Editor's Podcast. Thank you so much, Charles.
4: Thank you. I really appreciate it.
2: And that is the show for this week, or one show, not even mad, and a show from 2018. Unfortunately for us, we will be revisiting this issue at large. The Gist is produced by assistant producer Corey Wara and senior producer Joel Patterson. Talk to you Monday. I'll be back in the U.S.